there. I'm your friend Bev, host of Stop Psychoanalyzing Me, a podcast about mental health. I interview experts and ask questions about mental disorders that all of us might be curious about. Come join me. On today's episode, we have Dr. Tay Hart. Dr. Hart is a clinical health psychologist and professor of psychology at Ryerson University in Toronto, Ontario. As the director of the Psychosocial Medicine Laboratory at Ryerson, Dr. Hart's research centers on psychological factors associated with adjustment to illness in chronically ill individuals and their spouses or partners. Primarily, Dr. Hart's work has investigated quality of life, psychological distress, and symptom burden in patients who have been diagnosed with cancer, multiple sclerosis, or gastrointestinal disorders. Dr. Hart, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're welcome. I'm so happy to have you here. Maybe before we jump into our topic today, I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your career so far and your work. Sure. I moved to Canada from, or I moved to Toronto from California in 2007. And I was at a medical school for a while. And then I got a job at Ryerson. And it was at the beginning of our program in terms of the PhD program. Uh, So I was one of the first faculty to help start up the clinical psychology program. There were a bunch of us, but I was part of that original crew. And I also work at a couple, I've had faculty positions at a couple of different hospitals and I've been working at medical schools, I guess, since 1995. So it was a natural fit for me uh, to join the faculty at Mount Sinai Hospital, where I have a position at the Zane Cohen Center for Digestive Diseases. And I run like a, a research program in psychosocial medicine, basically. Uh, And I can explain more about what that's all about, if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. So I just find it so interesting that you mentioned you've spent a lot of time in medical centers, and yet you're a psychologist. And we often think about psychologists being involved with the mind or mental illness or mental disorders, or maybe just problems in living and not necessarily associate that path with medical conditions. And so I'm just wondering, how does your work as a psychologist sort of fit into that realm? Yeah, I get that question a lot. What do you mean you study cancer, but you're a psychologist? And for a long time, I guess since 1991, I've been involved with kind of more of the, I guess, the medical end of psychology, which is called health psychology or it's called behavioral medicine. I knew from pretty early on that I was interested in working with people with HIV or cancer. And specifically, I knew that there was a whole, this is sort of when I lived in Michigan and I was just finishing my undergraduate tenure. And I knew that there was a branch of psychology where people got to work with people dealing with medical problems or medical conditions. And so when I applied to graduate school, I I really only applied to work with people who were doing that kind of work. And I ended up working with somebody who the field is called 
called psycho-oncology, which is basically the psychology of cancer, not what causes cancer, but how people live with and deal with cancer. So I was really lucky to find somebody to mentor me in that area. And I've been doing that work ever since. So I guess my work is focused on how people live with chronic health conditions. And that's the psychology aspect of it. But I also work with a lot of, specifically, my work is focused a lot on colorectal cancer and hereditary forms of colorectal cancer. And so I work a lot with genetic counselors and surgeons. In fact, those folks are are my most common collaborators versus other psychologists. I'm often the only psychologist involved in the kind of work that I do. Wow. So it sounds like you really take a hands-on and sort of interdisciplinary approach to helping folks deal with a a diagnosis that is probably very scary or overwhelming for them. Yeah, that, that, that feels right. Um, And that's in terms of the research that I do, but also I have a small private practice and I I see people with lots of different kinds of problems. That is sort of my favorite work to do is I end up getting many young people into my like clinical practice, my psychotherapy practice, who have gotten a diagnosis when all of their friends are out there starting their careers and starting their lives. And it's like, oh, hello, you're, you know, 28 years old, and you've been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and you've lost use of your hands, or you have optic neuritis, which is blindness that's caused by MS lesions, or you've now been diagnosed with a hereditary form of cancer, and you've got stage three colorectal cancer, and you're 30 years old. So those are the kinds of things that People really, I mean, people struggle with all kinds of diagnoses at various points in their life. But I, I think for young people, young adults, we live in a culture where nothing's supposed to happen to you till you're older. That's the myth. But there are lots of young people living out there with various chronic medical conditions. There's not a lot of support. And so that's why people end up seeking therapy is because they've got a, a big load to deal with. And often, a lot of times, people in their life just don't understand it. They don't understand. They can't relate to it. Yeah, I can imagine. I, I bet, or I'm wondering, a lot of folks you might see in your practice are maybe the only person they even know with cancer, or maybe the only person they even know with multiple sclerosis. And I bet it can be pretty isolating for them. It, yeah, I, I think it is isolating. And You know, support groups are, some people love being in a support group and other people find it really triggering to be in a support group. So support groups aren't a one size fit all kind of thing. In fact, the majority of people that I've worked with or seen want nothing to do with them. Uh, So they really prefer a one-on-one approach. And are support groups typically offered through hospitals? Is that sort of why you bring that up? I bring it up because when I was thinking about the isolation, that's a free way to get support. And they're often offered by community groups. So they might be offered by various like Wellspring or Gilda's Club or the MS Society, or like there, there are various like IBD, which is Crohn's colitis. They offer various support groups. So you would find them in the community. They're often not sponsored by the hospital or funded by the hospital, which is 
our hospitals, at least here in Toronto, don't offer a lot in terms of patient support. And so people are really often left to fend for themselves, do their own research online, which is overwhelming, try and source various ways to understand what they're facing or living with. Mm, And I'm wondering too, maybe there might be some misinformation online, or maybe that leads to even greater anxiety for folks you know, kind of reeling from a diagnosis or maybe who are living with, uh, you know, sort of a chronic illness for a long time. There's some awesome information on the internet and some terrible information on the internet. And you can really be led astray. What does it look like when someone presents to you in your psychotherapy clinic? Like, like how do you assess for problems in living associated with the diagnosis? Or what do you look at, I guess? What are you looking for when someone comes in for a course of treatment? How do you know you can help them? That's a really good question because I'm not looking for anything. But I would say the majority of people that are coming for psychotherapy want to work with a psychologist that they don't have to educate about their particular condition. They don't want to have to explain how it came Mm. to be that they have a hereditary form of cancer. They don't want to have to explain what the medications are for if they're dealing with Crohn's and Colitis. They don't want to have to explain like the years of being ignored by their physician because they were presenting with some really troubling symptoms and being told it's in your head. They want someone that actually gets it, that's there, that's kind of on the ground with them. And so people are looking for somebody that, that already is on the same page as them. And then the second thing is mostly people want to, they want help with how to manage the uncertainty of living. Now, we all live with uncertainty every day of our life. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Like we, we can only be right here, right now. But I, so while that's true for us all, there's a really big difference in, in knowing that your illness is probably progressive, depending on what it is, or that you might be waiting for something else to happen. So although you might be quite healthy right now, there's a 60% chance that you're going to develop a particular kind of cancer because of uh, the genetic mutation. And living with kind of that idea that something's going, probably something's going to happen, and it's happened to other people in your family, so you've got some modeling around that, what that could look like, is hard. And how do you stay present? How do you make plans for the future? How do you, if you're interested in having a family, how do you plan for a family knowing that probably something's out there that's not so great, but you don't know when it's going to happen and you don't know if or how it's going to happen. And we don't receive a lot of skills in our life to manage that kind of uncertainty just as a collective. We don't do great with that. So I think it really makes sense that people need assistance with that. I, I think that's a pretty common thing that people want to be able to do is to be able to figure out how to deal with the rumination, the, the, the thoughts about this, like the thoughts that end up dominating everyday life that are really troubling to people. And how do you get out of your own head and let, uh, I always liken it to driving in a car. It's like, we can never get rid of that condition. But what I hope to help you to do is to stick it in the trunk of the car. So it's not driving the car at all times. Sometimes it's going to drive the car. Sometimes it's going to be a passenger giving you instructions as you drive the car, which is 
you know, really annoying. But my hope is that we can figure out a way to put it, put it not just in the backseat, but to put it in the trunk. So we can never unload it, but how do we manage it? How can we manage it better? I love that metaphor so much. I think it makes a lot of sense. And I bet when people hear that, they feel maybe a a sense of relief hearing that, that this disease that they're dealing with, it doesn't necessarily have to be in the driver's seat at all times. You mentioned uh, working with thoughts, I think. You mentioned maybe helping folks think about their illness in a different way? Or what does that actually look like in a psychotherapy session? It's got a couple of different elements to it. So the primary modality that I practice in is cognitive behavioral therapy. And I think that there are are basically three really active ingredients to cognitive behavioral therapy. One is helping people deal with thoughts that are troubling, unhelpful, but sometimes our thoughts are right on, right? Like they're spot on. There's nothing inaccurate about them. You know, it's pretty hard to say to somebody that has advanced stage cancer, oh, well, you shouldn't be thinking about recurrence. It's like, well, no, recurrence is actually a real thing. It's, it's a probability, not an improbability. So when our thoughts are accurate, how do we next deal with that. So the the second two components of of cognitive behavioral therapy are problem solving. Something that's pretty common in the folks that I see is that they don't love their provider. They have a provider, like their family doc doesn't know anything about their condition and is is basically blowing them off. So great example of problem solving is, is how do we help find you a better GP? How do we help find you a better specialist? How do we get you more support on the ground to manage your chronic condition. So that's a big thing that we end up talking about. So your thought that your doctor is not helping you is not an inaccurate thought. It's quite accurate. And so we have to move to problem solving. But what happens when we can't change our thoughts, we can't solve the problem, we have to move into acceptance. And so that's the third component is learning to accept the things that we can't change. And that is something that is a chronic malady that that all of us suffer with is like the skills around accepting hardship in life to accept the fact that you do have a chronic condition that it might worsen or that you on all probability might have a recurrence if you've got advanced stage cancer how do you accept that accept that your life might be shortened or depending on what it is likely will be shortened or that you will become progressively disabled. That's really hard. And so cognitive behavioral therapy can help a bit with that. But I think we're really dealing with more of the existential issues of how do you live with the fact that you have a foreshortened life if that is actually the case for you? Or that you are facing more disability, that you're going to have to be using mobility aids. Again, I see a lots of different conditions, but uh, so I'm, I'm kind of mushing them all together here. I think that acceptance takes a different approach. And it really, one of the big things that I help people to do is clarify their values. 
what do they really want out of their life? What do, if they are to become more progressively disabled, how do they want to live? If they know that they've got just a couple of years left, how do they want to live? And how do they live within according, how do they live within their own values? And a lot of people don't spend a lot of time to think about that. We should be, but we don't. Our culture doesn't really support it. But that's the platform I hope to support in psychotherapy. Mm, Wow. I love hearing about this almost three-pronged approach, right? Working at the level of thoughts and helping folks maybe find some flexibility around some of the maybe really unhelpful thoughts or the thoughts that are quite catastrophic. And then I also heard you mention some problem solving even around issues related to the medical care they're receiving. And then finally, that very poignant and necessary acceptance piece. Do you find that there's a lot of resistance in folks when trying to encourage them to practice acceptance around their condition? Oh, yeah. I think that people have to be allowed to grieve. And that's another thing that our culture Mm. doesn't support. So at Ryerson, I teach a course on death, dying, and bereavement for the undergraduates. And I, I always say, you've got... There's no research backing this up, but just this is my kind of observation is no matter what has happened to you that's terrible, you have two weeks to grieve it and get over it. Oh, did you get diagnosed with stage four cancer? Two weeks. Did your father die? Two weeks. Did your dog die? Two weeks. Oh, did your house burn down? You have two weeks to get it together and then get back at work and act like none of that ever happened to you. So we have a grief denying culture. We also have a death denying culture where we compartmentalize it. We can only talk about it in the moment that it's happening, but we know that people take a long time to grieve things and everybody's course and trajectory is totally different and you have no idea how it's going to unfold for you. So I think that one of the things that people have to do is grieve the life that they don't get to continue to live or grieve the losses Mm -hmm. of the future. And that can't be rushed. You know, nobody ever comes to therapy because it's a fun thing to do on a Tuesday. It's not, I mean, it's, it's expensive. It can be a bit painful. It, it, it takes a significant chunk of time away from your day to day. There's homework that you probably need to be working on in between sessions. It's a commitment And so if people were able to solve these problems on their own, they, people wouldn't need to go to therapy. But the truth is, is that we don't, we don't gift people a lot of these skills and we don't model them. We don't teach them. We often don't support them. It's almost, and so a lot of times people feel like they're failing because they're struggling with whatever they're struggling with. And I would say that that's the case no matter what you're coming to therapy for. But the truth of the matter is, is if you could solve it on your own, you would have by now. So sometimes you need a supportive person in your life that isn't rushing you, that isn't, doesn't need anything from you, doesn't want anything from you, like your partner might, or if you've got kids or your parents, that can just let you be in your grief and support you through your grief. And I, I think that if people aren't allowed to process their grief, they can't 
it's very difficult to get to acceptance. What do you think grief processing looks like? Is that allowing folks to cry? Is it helping them say goodbye to dreams they had? Are there tools that help folks move through or process grief in your sessions? I I don't think it's about thought stopping. I don't think it's about changing your thoughts. I think that part of that grief work is allowing yourself to have the feelings. And people don't like to be in pain. So this isn't a technical term. (laughs) It's certainly not anything that you know, you'll read in a book about cognitive behavioral therapy, but I will just say just as a human being, I think that holding space for people is critical. And there is some research on that. It's not called holding space, but it's providing room for people to grieve. And also they need to give themselves permission to have really crappy feelings. I think that's half of the grief work is allowing yourself to experience whatever it is you're experiencing and not shut it down. People that I think that we all have, we want a rule about what, how grief should look. It's, and, you know, depending on your religious tradition, there may be various ways of, of grieving, but for example, in Judaism, the it's considered a year of mourning when someone dies, but there's nothing magical about a year. It's not like, Oh, 365 days passed, Mm -hmm. I should be over this by now. And I think that helping, there's some, I think some education that goes with that. It's like, you may have grief come up at various time points. So a great example in working with people who are living with a hereditary cancer or genetic mutation, if you've got to get screened every year, you may find that your yearly, for like colorectal cancer, you may find that your yearly colonoscopy is is pretty upsetting and pretty triggering and you have a bunch of old feelings come up or the date of when you were diagnosed or the date of a year from your last surgery, you may find that there's grief and anger, fury, sadness. And I think that expecting yourself to not have those feelings, a lot of times it's the ex- working with people's expectations and helping them to realize, yeah, that's going to happen whether you want it to or not, really gives people the permission to be like, I'm going to have those feelings. They're going to pass, but I'm going to have those feelings. So in terms of tools, I think those are some of them. There's no instruction manual. There's no instruction manual about how to do this or what is the right way. And then if you didn't do it that way, you fail. You flunked. You flunked life. Like that's that's not what it's about. Yeah, what you're saying resonates a lot with another guest we had on the podcast who is a grief counselor working with children primarily. And she talked about how our society seems to be so death phobic and afraid of talking about these really hard things. And I do wonder how grief might be different for someone who knows they are going to die shortly versus maybe a loved one of that person who's kind of watching them go through this. There's so many facets to this and it's complicated and it's messy. And you're right. There is no 
instruction manual. You know what? You just brought up something that's actually pretty relevant and pretty interesting for anybody who's listening out there. I think that being the partner of somebody who's got a chronic medical illness or is facing a decline at some point is really hard. So I, I talked a bit about how people living with the conditions don't have a lot of support. Well, guess who has even less support? The partners, because the partners are often thought mm. of as people that just have to like be strong and supportive and not have any of their own feelings. But guess what? If you if you're living in a family unit, you're going to have your feelings, and that's going to be that's going to be really important to take caregiver burnout is real caregiver support is mm-hmm. and so folks you know the idea of a caregiving kind of evokes something a bit different but whether you're a caregiver or a partner i think that living with someone who has a chronic condition is important to look at. And those folks may need support as well. And there may even be couples therapy that's needed for if people are in a dyad, there may be couples therapy that might be really important to do. In fact, I was involved with a study this mm-hmm. a long time ago, almost 20 years ago, but we did a small, this is uh, when I was living in California, we did a small study of couples that were facing end of life. So one of the partners had been diagnosed, had been basically had an illness that the physician believed would be over within six months. So they basically had six months to live. And it was a very small study, but Mm -hmm. it was a study of couples therapy for, for couples facing end of life. And to kind of say their goodbyes to each other and also sort out whatever issues they had. And we saw that that was actually pretty, it was a a pretty beautiful process for a lot of the couples. And then there were some people that just couldn't, couldn't face their problems and dropped out of the study because that's pain. That's very painful work. And it takes a lot of bravery to, to do that. But I think for the surviving partner, and also the person who's going to die, that work is pretty critical and really does facilitate grieving and surviving for this for the surviving partner. Absolutely. And it just sounds like the work you do is so meaningful in facilitating this process for the person whose life is foreshortened, but also their partner or maybe their family members who are watching all of this unfold and not having a manual, not really knowing how to deal with. If you don't mind, I'd like to circle back to the main topic uh, of the podcast. And that's really about, you know, what is health psychology all about? And and it, from what I've learned today, it sounds like a health psychologist is someone who has an advanced understanding of specific medical populations, whether that be cancer, gastrointestinal disease, multiple sclerosis in your case, or any other conditions. And I and I imagine many health psychologists are also working with folks who are grieving. And and yeah, I, I don't think I ever really put two and two together that there would be this such a big grief component. I suppose, in that kind of work. I'm also wondering though, could you maybe speak a little bit to what are other roles or or what are some other things health psychologists might do just for folks who've never heard of health psychology before? 
I think that the majority of what we're talking about is in terms of psychotherapy. Like if you went to go see a behavioral medicine person or a health psychologist, it's about adjusting to various medical conditions or living with how to live with those. But uh, health psychologists also do pain management. So there are folks that are, are specifically focused on how people live with pain. So you may be using acceptance and commitment therapy. You may be using dialectic behavior therapy or especially mindfulness-based approaches are really, really helpful with chronic pain. Okay. Wow. I, I didn't actually realize that health psychologists work with folks with chronic pain. I mean, that makes sense, but I, it's tough for me to imagine how psychotherapy can help with pain. When I hear about pain, I'm thinking medication or maybe physiotherapy. So it's interesting to hear that psychotherapy can help with that. Is there evidence to support that? Yeah, there is. There is a pretty decent evidence base for various kinds of therapy helping with chronic pain. So acceptance, I think I mentioned this in my prior answer, acceptance and commitment therapy, uh, mindfulness-based approaches are very, very useful in helping manage chronic pain, mindfulness-based stress reduction. There's groups all over Toronto to free resources out there to help with pain. And I think that one of the big things that people need help with in managing pain is how do you not let pain dominate every moment of waking? So cognitive behavioral mm. therapy also can have some efficacy for chronic pain. So working with those thoughts about how horrible the pain is, putting other kinds of activities in your life. So to help, it's not distraction per se, but it's filling your life with things that are not just about pain and doing them in spite of the pain, not pushing your body to the point of breaking, but there are lots of pain management techniques that are very behavioral in nature. And so if someone is really good with chronic pain, there are some really useful techniques out there and really useful therapies out there. It's not a focus of my practice, but it is something that I'm, I'm interested in, especially mindfulness-based approaches. That's so interesting, but that totally makes sense that maybe something like cognitive behavioral therapy could help with some of the pain catastrophizing or maybe mindfulness of just being in the present moment and feeling those sensations and kind of practicing maybe tolerating them or just letting them be could be helpful. I'd love to wrap up our interview today by giving you the chance to talk about maybe some common misconceptions about the kinds of work that you do or other health psychologists do or anything else that you'd like our listeners to take away from our episode today. I'm not so sure how to comment on misconceptions, but I, I do think that when I tell people what I do, they're often surprised that why is a psychologist, it's sort of like, what's mm -hmm. a psychologist doing here? Why do you have mm -hmm. a, a department of surgery? And it's like, well, there's, I'm lucky that I have a boss and a mentor that really understands that that's Zane Cohen of the Zane Cohen Center for Digestive Diseases. I'm really lucky that I'm surrounded by professionals that value the role of psychology in terms of people living with 
hereditary conditions or chronic or chronic medical conditions. And I don't think, I think that that's a problem when people see a GP is that there's not the additional support or suggestion of support. And I think people can live more fulsome, happier lives. I'm not saying everybody needs to do therapy. As you know, therapy is, has a lot of barriers to it in Ontario, uh, specifically the price point. I wish there was more support within kind of our local medical units to help people with this. So I, I, I think that's the, the most interesting part is explaining to people what I do and why it's relevant to psychology. Absolutely. I think I learned so much today just about a little bit more about what health psychology is and the kind of work you do. And it sounds wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And that was today's episode. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was hosted by Bev Catherine and produced by Yuri Hladio. Podcasting isn't free. Consider supporting the podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com. You'll get early access to episodes and other exclusive content. You can find us on patreon.com slash stop psychoanalyzing me. Until next time. Music.